we are ready for many dangers that are around us all the time. Fire is a danger, but we are ready for fires. We have a fine fire department to put out the fire, and you have fire drills in your school so you know what to do. Automobiles can be dangerous too, but we are ready. We have safety rules that car drivers and people who are walking must obey. Now, we must be ready for a new danger. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. My name is Michael, and it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So we're going to do something a little special and venture out of the university gates to find out what it's like on the front lines of education awareness for cybercrime prevention. This month, we'll take in two different viewpoints of that world that combats cybercrime. Our guest today is Dr. Cara Brisson-Boyven, who is Director of Research at Mediasmarts. You can see what Mediasmarts do by following the link in the show notes later. But now, let's get into the interview and start off by finding out who it is that they are. So Mediasmarts is a not-for-profit uh, charitable organization. It's been around since 1996, about 25 years. We are, our main sort of mission or mandate is, a, is to provide digital media literacy education to Canadians, uh, primarily children and youth and the adults who support them. Although in the past couple of years, we've definitely engaged in uh, projects for a wider audience, a wider sort of adult Canadian audience. Um, and our, our work sort of takes the, sh- the shape of three different pillars, if you will. Uh, research, which is sort of what I'm leading the charge on. Uh, so we conduct original research on a variety of different digital media literacy topics, digital issues. And then that work informs uh, both scholarship and knowledge in the field, but also our own work uh, that then the educational team uh, at Media Smarts takes up. And best case scenario, and you know, nine and a half times out of ten, turns into uh, resources, educational resources, primarily again for the K to twelve sector. But we've also done uh, games and tools and and apps and resources for a wider uh, public audience. Um, and then the other piece of our work is um, sort of advocacy, policy advising. Sometimes we get asked to testify uh, to Senate committees and sort of knowledge mobilization and, uh, as I say, sort of activism around digital media literacy, digital equity, and, and those kinds of things. So you said research, and, and that's the thing that you're involved in. What's your background, and, and how did you come to be at MediaSmart? So uh, my background, I have a PhD in sociology. Um, my, I guess a bit before that, I have a master's in sociology and criminology. So my PhD research still kind of followed my interest in, uh, criminology. I, my, my PhD studies were actually around, uh, prison standards. I was looking at prison standards in, in Nunavut and in Haiti, um, and, uh, looking at, uh, indigenous ethos of punishment within those contexts. Um, and I'd done that project for a while, was really, you know, was really excited, still holds a place near and dear to my heart. But when I was finishing that up um, and wrapped up the the doctorate, kind of uh, had an interest in something beyond academia, uh, particularly really wanted to get involved in a sector where research would be mobilized for direct use, action, and live kind of outside of and beyond academia. And through uh, some colleagues and friends in the, in the criminology field uh, in Ottawa, working at a couple of different universities, 
um, I heard about a job opening at Media Smart. They were looking for a director of research, and I took the chance and uh, ended up jumping, you know, two feet into a bit of a different sort of field, uh, although very much the you know, sociological, uh, less so criminological, but even then, uh, there's definitely, um, you know, definitely still pulling up at the roots of some of the the training and, and you know, learnings I would have, I, you know, am familiar with. Um, but I think one of the things that I really have loved, I've been here for about three and a half years now in this, in this role, and one of the things I love about it is that piece of, like, you get to see what I was just describing, that relationship between conducting research and then seeing it mobilized in a couple of different ways, right? You know, the kind of tr traditional ways that we're used to in a paper or, you know, a report, a white paper, but then also seeing, you know, my colleagues use that work to turn it into, and to address, more importantly, some of the recommendations and needs coming out of the research is just really fulfilling. So I, I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of that. And, and also the opportunities we have to really mobilize work in a bunch of different factors like the government uh, or other political sort of circles. So, so that's kind of what's brought me here. And in the last six months in particular, I, I um, joke that I really can't get away from criminology because a lot of the projects that we've either proposed or are currently working on um, are around things like online safety, uh, digital harassment, digital harms, technological facilitated family violence, uh, you know, online hate. So still very much uh, connected to, to that and, and uh, still very much using, uh, using that part of my brain, if you will. But um, yeah, I really, I really am enjoying working in the, in the sort of civil society sphere. So from prison standards to uh, educational standards, I guess. Yeah, or uh, one of the things that we're working on right now, actually, are kind of minimum specs or standards around digital literacy and, and digital equity and digital inclusion. Um, so definitely still taking those frameworks of sort of, like I say, what are going to be the minimum specs for you know, keeping people safe, healthy, and um, active and engaged online? Keeping people safe and healthy online as an entire landscape, working on trying to make the, the online space safe. Where would you say that you fit into that, that cybersecurity ecosystem? Yeah, and I think that's like, like the key you know, thing worth noting there is it is an ecosystem and there's a ton of moving parts. And I think it's actually worth practicing these comments and noting that um, don't actually think we can ever be fully safe online. Just like, you know, the, the idea that we could ever be fully safe offline is somewhat, um, you know, possibly impossible. I mean, we can feel, we want to be in a place where we feel that we are, are um, you know, are most safe or in, in, in at least risk of harm, you know, but um, I think there is sometimes is a perception that with all these players working, as you say, that we can somehow create this utopian space online. Um, and I'm not sure that that's a really realistic path to go down. Um, but, but there's definitely a lot of work in which to get to a place where everybody feels safe, or at least feels that they are, you know, able to participate um, you know, actively in a way in which they are not, um, you know, subject to harm or risk. Um, and I think where we, you know, enter the the field, as I said, we're really an education-based organization. So our objectives are really to provide users with um, information, to equip them with tools, skills, um, 
and knowledge to be able to engage as what we call active digital citizens. I couldn't agree more with what you said about security, but I guess the difference is between letting your kids play in a knife factory and letting them play in a ball pit. I mean, there's a, there's a chance that they're going to get hurt doing either, but one of them, at least, you've you've set up a a set of factors to really, really reduce and, and feel in control of, of the risk. Yeah, precisely. I think that's just it. Like we don't want to, you know, we're certainly not, you know, wanting to allow anything and everything, you know, to happen. Um, we don't want the knife factory, but at the same time, um, we have to be realistic that yes, you know, injury can still happen. I think especially when it comes to thinking about young people online, um, there are a whole bunch of different sort of tools and and frankly conceptualizations that they are using when they engage online. So for example, you and I might have a really different understanding of privacy. In fact, we probably have a somewhat decent understanding of, of corporate uses of data. But young people, when they talk about privacy and they talk about data protection, for example, they use a lot of the relational framings they use offline and apply that in their online context. So for young people, they think corporations should behave just as their friends ought to. You know, so they would say, well, you know, a corporation should ask me first before they use my photo or a corporation should seek my consent on this very specific piece of information that they've gathered through this, you know, survey or contest I did. When we know for a fact that's not how corporate, uh, you know, privacy uh, work or corporate understandings of privacy work such as what we would see in a term of terms of service kind of agreement. But that's really true in a lot of different contexts. You know, we've done work with young people on privacy and consent. We've recently done research with youth around algorithms and AI, and we found something really similar where they were, you know, coming into their, the, their knowledge of algorithms and AI were very much based on how they interact with their peers and their friends. And, you know, uh, a lot of our work involves uh, educating through the research process. So in that project, we ended up uh, doing focus groups where young people played an educational game to help them better understand algorithms. And through that, they began to really undo a lot of their thinking and come to realize that, oh, wait, like, I think I actually have this wrong. An algorithm isn't necessarily my friend curating content for me. An algorithm wants to know about me so it can make assumptions about other young people like me. Um, but yeah, I think the, the most important thing when it comes to young people is this understanding that or, or the need to help them understand how um, the, on, the mechanics of the online world, the architecture and how our environments, you know, or the online environment shapes our experiences and, and vice versa. The Internet's often sort of referred to as kind of the Wild West. And there's a whole lot of things that we don't know. And then there's a whole other set of things that we don't know that we don't know. So it must be difficult to develop a useful and functional and effective education program for that. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the process of getting to, to something useful? Like, how's the sausage made? So I think it's, it's important to, to start with fundamentals. So we've developed sort of fundamentals of digital media literacy. Um, and we're actually in the process of just uh, updating those or revamping them, if you will. So I'll give you a bit of a sneak peek. Right now, we start with this idea of access as kind of this all-encompassing, you know, perimeter circle, if you will. Access is the first step to being able to develop digital media literacy. 
it is not the sort of end all and be all, which it sometimes is framed in political discussions, especially in Canada right now. And, and access is very important. And there are certainly places where it is an issue. Um, but as I say, it, it's, it's a first point of entry. So then once we have access, we look at these, these pillars to use, to understand, and to engage. And we think of it as a Venn diagram where these three pillars are kind of moving together and digital literacy is that point where they intersect. So use would refer to things like those key kind of competencies. Sometimes they're referred to hard skills like how you, you know, send an email, the mechanics of playing a particular video game. Uh, you know, knowing all the ins and outs of how to, you know, engage in different uh, social media platforms. But understand is that next step, that critical competency of, okay, you, you get the basics of how to create an account and, you know, post photos. But do you understand how to control audience settings, for example, to control who's seeing those photos? Do you understand the implications of sharing things like your birth date online, which we shouldn't do? Do you understand why you shouldn't post a photo of yourself outside your home with the address in the background and those sorts of things. So that's the next kind of the critical competencies. And then finally engage is um, that, that space where you both know how to use and understand, but also can begin to participate at a level in which you're contributing to the environment, to contributing to the space. You've reached that, that sort of level where you're actively engaging in ethical digital citizenship. So things like maybe you are creating content yourself. Uh, we've had a lot of young people, for example, who've talked about their activism in, on social media platforms around environmentalism. Or uh, I had this really fun story of a young woman who told me that she started this uh, society for feral cats in Toronto because she was so concerned about all the, you know, the cats running around the streets of the city. But, you know, that's just showing that sort of next level of of engagement. And I mean, I'm saying level, but we don't really want to think of these things as a hierarchy. We want to think of them more as an ecosystem because you can have elements of each and not be fully digitally, you know, literate or competent. Um, and it's, and all that's to say that it's kind of a constant ongoing uh, learning exercise. So while, you know, we as an organization target young people through the school system with these fundamentals, I mean, these are things that we constantly have to be re-educating ourselves well into adulthood, as we know that, you know, the online environment is constantly changing. So these aren't static skills that we can go great, you know, learn these in, in high school. So I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> like These are things that we're constantly going to have to um, be thinking about, be learning about. Some of the skills are, are definitely, you know, some critical thinking skills are definitely things that are nimble and we can, you know, uh, rely on. But as I said, when, when the environment is constantly changing and the issues are going to shift and change, you're going to have to exercise some flexibility there. Say there's a particular issue that, that you, you, you want to educate for, some kind of intervention that, that you need to design. How does it get from those sort of concepts and understandings to this is a need and, and, and here's a thing that can help with that? Yeah, sure. So typically what we do is, um, and I guess one of our touchstones is we do this project called Young Canadians in a Wireless World. We've been doing it roughly every five years since the beginning of the organization. So right now we're collecting data in the fourth phase of that project. Um, and then that, that project is Canada and actually it's recognized internationally for one of the deepest dives into young Canadians experiences online. That really gives us a kind of kitchen sink glance at what are young Canadians experiencing online at this moment in time? 
And that survey then goes on to really be the kind of touchstone of where we need to do deeper dives for the next couple of years. Um, and so we've used that to help us you know, see the need to do a further, deeper, closer look at things like uh, recently online hate, online privacy, AI and algorithms and data protection, uh, sexting. Um, and so then we do a closer look with a, you know, either in qualitative focus groups or another more uh, targeted survey with youth across the country. And then it's those deeper dives that really help us to formulate the tools and resources. So one of the projects we've done in the last five years has been focusing on young Canadians pushing back against hate online. So we did a, a study, conducted the research, and then we're currently uh, in the process of just finalizing an online tool that will be rolled out in, in all Canadian schools and classrooms, but also through a variety of different community groups, targeting students primarily in grades nine to 10, but it's for a high school or secondary, so grade nine to 12 um, age range, although I think a lot of adults would benefit from it, um, but it's gonna be a multimedia platform. There will be some curriculum lessons that my education colleagues have written for teachers in the education sector, but it's, it has a bunch of different spokes. So there's a place to kind of learn some foundational knowledge about what online hate is, how to recognize it, learn from young people and what they've told us about how they push back and where they struggle with that, get some a chance to practice some skills around doing that, how to intervene. And then finally, the last uh, spoke of this multimedia platform allows them to make their own memes, make their own videos, really play with technology. And then for what's wonderful is it's going to create this library of content that young people have put together where again, they're gonna get to see and learn from other young people's experiences, which really helps build empathy, which is absolutely critical and crucial, especially when we're gaining uh, or engaging online. There tends to be a lot of empathy traps. You know, we don't necessarily see each other's faces. We don't get body language cues, all those things, especially when it comes to pushing back and in, in the context of online hate. So that's just one example of one of the ways that like, we take those fundamentals we focus on a particular issue that we've seen through a larger study. This looks like there's something here. We do a deeper dive and then we, our education team really uses what we've learned there to build a tool. And even in that tool, we're constantly iterating. There's a space that young people will provide. And we, we do testing and program evaluation, but young people will constantly provide assistance feedback as they engage in it. So we can keep updating that, that tool. So, and that tool will come out in January, I believe in 2022. The the cybersecurity environment, this this ecosystem, there there are a lot of different players in it. What what are the challenges that come from being a, a non for profit trying to provide public goods in a confusing space like education and cybersecurity? Yeah, it is tricky. I think there there's two things here. The the first is as you mentioned, the the ecosystem is is difficult to navigate and it's a little crowded at times. Um, and there tends, there is, frankly, a, a bit of a hierarchy that's been created. And part of that, I think, is around a bit of a fallacious understanding of like cybersecurity as an issue, um, where there tends to be a lot of money, time, and resources put into things that are, are target projects that are targeting kind of hard, what we would call like hard approaches to this. So by that, I mean like tech to crack down on a cybersecurity threat. 
Um, and, and that's important and that's great. And we shouldn't stop doing that. But the the challenges and those projects tend to be things, you know, that can that can say, for example, to a funder or to or in this space, you know, we will do X and produce Y. And there's a kind of a guarantee that can be done there, especially or, or at least a a stronger guarantee when there's something like AI involved or a technological solution. So we do tend to really lean towards those. And so what that does then is for those of us in say the nonprofits, you know, producing public goods or more, you know, on what I think often considered the lower end of that of this higher this, you know, I think falsely created hierarchy is that it it makes it really hard for as you say us to say, well, we need some you know money or resources to do this project. We don't really know what the outcome is going to be. We have some ideas and assumptions. We actually need to test those, maybe totally different, you know, and so that becomes really it becomes a challenge when we've polarized the way that I think sometimes that we see like cybersecurity threats in our responses to them. Um, when I think it would be a lot more fruitful if we were able to see this as an ecosystem where these things need to coexist and be working together and alongside one another. And we could rethink, you know, how might we do and achieve these things simultaneously? You know, how can education and research, um, you know, be used to help us better understand the implications of using technology and maybe some of the unforeseen uh, consequences of that, like algorithmic bias and those sorts of things. So I think I think that's part of the challenge there is is sometimes I think we end up in this polarizing a space that is uh, probably better suited off with a allowing a lot more players, you know, or, or voices at the table, if you will. Having had the opportunity to present freely available and human-oriented content at a cybersecurity conference when the next booth over has a silver bullet black box solution with a definite price tag, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit tough. Yeah, and of course, when we're doing human-centered, you know, projects, humans are unpredictable, <laughs> you know, so there is, I don't think, ever really going to be um, something that we can say definitively. I mean, folks like to even, you know, the in, in you know, statistical sciences, I mean, w- you know, you have to be mindful that, like, even when, you know, we're doing, you know, fantastic statistical reporting, I mean, there's always room for error. These things can always be interpreted differently. Um, and human experience is always going to be different. But I think that's a real value added. And I think it is a real shame that we sometimes lean towards the black box um, and, 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 and are shy to, to try to take on the challenge of, you know, projects that focus on experience or, as you say, human-centered both experiences of cybersecurity and also, you know, challenges. And I, I can't, you know, um, emphasize enough, I think, that the need for uh, the inclusion of and perhaps even more focus on human-centered solutions because um, that, I think, is going to be absolutely critical moving forward. As I said earlier, as the online environment changes and cybersecurity threats change, um, not only do we need a strong foundational knowledge and digital, like strong foundation of digital media literacy, but you know we're going to need to build on that foundation um, and we're going to need to constantly be um, supporting not just young people. I think if we're talking about Canada, if we're talking about a global citizenry, the pandemic has done nothing but show us that more and more of our lives are going to be online. So we, you know, and I don't think that's entirely going to change if and when we find some kind of new normal. So yeah, I can't emphasize enough the need for projects and for folks who are going to work in that, in that sphere. And I think 
creating them or, or offering them as a public good is also absolutely critical because they need to be accessible and inclusive for as broad an audience as possible. It's a nice fallback for 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 adults to just think that the 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 younger generation understands technology better and therefore they'll do these things better. But I wouldn't want uh, an elementary school kid to have to figure out about all of the types of crime that are possible online through through a process of elimination. I, I don't think that's a good way. So it's very important that you're developing uh, education tools to, to give them the leg up that they need. Yeah, and I think it's such an amazing opportunity to uh, encourage intergenerational learning. It's one of the things we're constantly trying to do with parents and children and grandparents and children, and especially, you know, the parents and grandparents or other trusted adults tend to shy away from, I don't know, some of the things that the kids are doing today. Well, you know, then take the opportunity to sit down with your children and talk about it. And you have knowledge and experience that you can bring to that because you can ask this young person, you might not know what TikTok is at all, but you can say to them, so what did you have to do to get the TikTok? What did they ask you to give them? Did you give your name? Did you give your email? Do you know how this works? You're posting pictures. Do you know who's seeing those pictures? I mean, that doesn't require, you know, deep technical knowledge. That's common sense and stuff, you know, and wisdom that one gets with age possibly and experience. So we're constantly trying to kind of remind people, you know, that the opportunity for intergenerational learning here is great. Um, so yeah, I would agree. I mean, we can't really, it, it's not, I don't think a really helpful uh, framing to say, well, you know, the younger generations will fix this, <laughs> fix this problem. Yeah. And the pandemic's a great time for, for doing those kind of intergenerational interactions. Yeah. I wanted to ask, out of all of the projects that you've been involved with, with MediaSmarts, is there, is there a favorite? Do you have your own personal favorite, one, that, one that's interesting for you for some reason, whether, whether super good or super bad or just really challenging? Is there, is there one that stands out? Okay. I, I, if, I, if, I can, if I'm allowed to pick two babies, I'll, I'll pick them. I'll give you a classic parent and say, I can't choose just one child. <laughs> um, but I, I would say I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the recent work we did uh, last winter around algorithms and AI. Uh, one, because it was new to me. So I always get kind of energized when a field is, is a little bit new and I get to do reading that's exciting and, and different. But I loved all of the real-time learning we were watching in those focus groups. Like, I, it's not an exaggeration to say that 100% of the participants at some point were like, I had no idea about this or I didn't know about that or wow, I'm going to stop doing this or I'm definitely not going to, you know, fill out those, you know, questionnaires anymore. That's, you know, what pair of shoes do you like the best, you know, it was really, it was really neat to see that, um, to see that happening in, in real time. And we could see how this, this game and this tool could be, is going to be widely successful once the, the project is done. So that was exciting. And we got to do some really creative research work there where we played a game, you know, as part of the research process. So that was fun. And then the other thing I'll say is one that I'm just, you know, hopeful that we'll, we'll be able to do because it's not come to be yet, but we did work on a proposal this summer um, around technology facilitated family violence. And that one, I'm just, you know, really, really hopeful we'll be able to, I think we'll make it happen one way or the other, but it's involving a lot of partner organizations and it will be a, about working with uh, either transitional homes or shelters to support survivors of family violence and equip them with a whole breadth of digital literacy skills, uh, many of which are of, around you know, privacy and security online um, to help them to feel confident that they can engage online. Um, and I think that that project just feels 
desperately important right now during the pandemic, as we've seen cases of uh, intimate partner violence rise, family violence rise, and people are, you know, frankly, um, you know, not only in increasing their engagement online, but also are in sometimes situations where um, that may be their only lifeline outside of of a, a pretty um, problematic or or abusive environment. So I'm, I'm like super fingers crossed that we'll be able to do that that project starting in a few months. Um, and it'll be a four-year project that involves, you know, research at the outset, uh, development of a bunch of tools, workshops, resources, and those will end up uh, on our website as well. Um, but but those will be really tangible, public for for a broader public audience. You know, as I say, tools uh, and building skills and tools for for participating and engaging confidently and safely in a bunch of different online contexts. So those are the two. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> Okay, so by way of the last question, and given given that it's it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month, um, if you could upload a piece of knowledge, matrix style, into every <laughs> every every person's or everybody in the world's base knowledge for cybersecurity or or digital literacy, you only get to pick one. What what would that one piece of knowledge be? I think it would be to open people's eyes or raise awareness around the impacts of online environments how they impact our online experience. Because I think, and what I've seen in the research in the last three years that I've been at Media Smarts is that we've somehow separated ourselves or, or maybe it's not even, maybe it's not that, maybe it's we've somehow become so immersed in the online uh, world that we have, are not able to um, see the ways in which apps are designed or platforms are designed or experiences are designed are impacting our engagement online. So in some cases, hindering our capacity to like fully uh, autonomously engage, in some cases, hindering our capacity to empathize with other human beings, in some cases, facilitating awful and egregious hate, uh, in some cases, deepening uh, social inequities, you know, whether it's you know, the use of algorithms to sift through job applications so white men end up at the top of the pile. Because I think, you know, the importance of opening people's eyes to that is that my hope is that it would create an awaken and, you know, enough of us uh, a desire for change. Because I, I just think we've kind of gotten quiet around this. And it may, and it may be um, because for a lot of us, we're just not aware of it. We're just not thinking that you know, there was actually a design decision to do this this way. And um, I'll sneak in a third project. I'm excited about <laughs> part of what we're doing is, is we want to look at manipulative design interfaces because some people call them dark patterns, right? About how, you know, the, the way that we engage online is, is actually sort of uh, manipulating our experience. And I think it's, you know, that's something that's not just applicable to young people, it's applicable to all of us. So yeah, I would would love to matrix style, like open people's thinking around the the online environments that we engage in and how they're impacting our capacity to to act autonomously, to be you know active citizens. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that because it's not that's not just impacting our online lives, it's directly impacting our offline lives as well. You know, not getting the job has a direct consequence for someone's offline life, not being, uh, you know, uh, approved for the mortgage or, you know, not being able to access technology and those sorts of sorts of things. So. 
as a wide concept, but can I condense it to smartphone glasses always tinted? Ooh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> smartphone glasses. Yeah. Okay. It'll be a byline of the next paper. Oh, you can have it. You can have it. <laughs> Everyone heard me say it. It's yours. Um, okay. So thanks very Thank much. You. Those projects that you mentioned are super exciting. And thanks very much for taking the time to chat and keep doing what you're doing. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks again to Dr. Kara Brisson Boyven from Media Smarts. You'll find out more from the links in the show notes. Next episode, we'll find out about the Canadian Anti Fraud Centre and their efforts to reduce the harms associated with fraud and cybercrime. So I look forward to sharing that with you soon. This has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's really only made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. If you do have a question or comment, you can reach me at at Cybercrimology on Twitter, or by old-fashioned email at cybercrimology at gmail.com.